unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Thamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun Times. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnav. A troubling surge in hate crimes and discrimination targeting Asian Americans has hit the headlines in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. The violence has cast a newfound spotlight on the bigotry many Asian immigrant populations experience in the United States. While Indian Americans have not borne the brunt of the discrimination of the COVID era, the community is no stranger to prejudice. A new report by the Carnegie Endowment, Johns Hopkins Sice, and the University of Pennsylvania looks at the question of discrimination and the broader social realities of the Indian diaspora in the United States. I was very pleased to have had the chance to work on the study with three excellent co-authors, Sumitra Badrinathan, Devesh Kapoor, and Jonathan Kay. All three of them joined me on the podcast today. Guys, good to see you again. Thanks, Milan. Good for having us. Thanks, Milan. Thanks, Milan. Devesh, let me start by asking you a big picture question before we get into the nitty gritty of the report. This is the third and final installment in a series of studies that we've done on Indian Americans. The first report, which came out last fall, looked at their political attitudes just before our U.S. election. The second report, which came out in February of this year, looked at their foreign policy attitudes, how they view India. This new report is about something entirely different, their social realities. Now, the term social realities is pretty wide-ranging. It could encompass many different things. Tell us a little bit about what this report is all about and and why we did it. I think, uh, Milan, broadly, we wanted to capture the diversity of lived experiences of a relatively young but rapidly increasing immigrant group. The diversity comes from from multiple sources. So India is a very diverse country, and Indian immigrants like to the U.S. uh, reflect that diversity to a a considerable extent. The second source is the fact that an increasing number of members of the Indian American community are second generation, those who were born sort of in the U.S., and we wanted to sort of see the generational differences. And the third is that the lived experiences also reflect the diversity of the U.S. itself, uh, both regional and spatial. Uh, what part of the U.S. you live shapes your lived experiences, uh, but also the fact that whether there are a few Indians or lots of Indians in the specific area, town, or city where you live. And so broadly, what our survey, what we wanted to do is to try and capture the richness and the diversity coming from these sources. So, Sumitra, I want to ask you about what I think is probably one of the headline findings of this report, which is that one in two Indian Americans reports being discriminated against in the past one year, in the past 12 months. The survey was carried out in September of last year. On what grounds do people of Indian origin experience bias? And and what do we know about who is on the other side doing the discriminating? Yeah, so we measure discrimination in a few ways in this report, but I wanted to highlight two. First, like you said, we asked respondents their lived experiences with discrimination with the question that you mentioned. In the last 12 months, have you personally felt discriminated against? And here we find that one in two Indian Americans or half of our sample says they've been discriminated against in the past year, which is a pretty significant number. I also want to break this up by subgroup. 
So we didn't find any gender differences in reporting discrimination, but we do find that Muslim respondents say they are significantly more likely to experience discrimination relative to other religious subgroups in the sample. Now, when people say that they're being discriminated against, it sort of begs the question, who is doing this discriminating? In our survey, if respondents said they were discriminated against, we asked whether the perpetrators were other Indians, non-Indians, or both. And here's what we find. Respondents overwhelmingly blame non-Indians when it comes to discrimination on the basis of either country of origin or skin color. And in both instances, roughly three quarters of our sample, so 75%, said that the perpetrators were non-Indians. And the other thing to mention here is that when people say they're being discriminated against, we want to ask on the basis of what. And we find that discrimination on the basis of skin color is the most common form of bias. So of all the types that we ask about, about 30% of our respondents say that they felt that they were discriminated against on the basis of their color of their skin. Following this, about 18% of respondents say that they were discriminated either because of their gender or their religion, about 18% apiece. So uh, this is, I think, an important point because it, we're not saying that one in two Indian Americans is discriminated against because they are Indian. They could be discriminated against for a variety of reasons having to do with where they're from, how they look, their their gender and, and their religion, so on and so forth. Uh, Devesh, you know, one thing the the report notes is that Indian Americans born in the United States uh, are more likely to report discrimination than those who are immigrants. So in other words, second generation uh, perceive much greater discrimination than first generation. This seems somewhat counterintuitive, given that if you're born in India or outside, you're more likely to wear native dress, more likely to have an accent that kind of you know places you in a foreign context. How do, how do you think about this finding? I think that was a <clears throat> sort of a very interesting finding. Uh, I, I think that two plausible reasons. Uh, <clears throat> we were unable to isolate the, the, the reasons, but I think looking back, uh, I think we think that there could be two such reasons. One is that those born in the U.S. have been socialized in ways that raise expectations about norms of equality. So if you have higher standards, uh, your disappointments can also be greater, right? Uh, if you go to a McDonald's, you're not particularly disappointed about the food you get. But if you go to a three-star Michelin restaurant, well, you're, you just expect, uh, you know, something else. I think there's a second reason which relates to Sumitra's earlier point about the sources of discrimination coming from, <clears throat> largely coming from non-Indians. See, immigrants, their social circles, which we found, their social networks are largely other Indians. So, of course, you're not going to be discriminated as much if you hang around other Indians. The second generation, however, those who are born here, their social networks are much wider. They include many other non-Indians. So, as your as your networks, your social circles, workspaces become much less insular, you in a sense are more exposed to outside sources of discrimination. Uh, as I said, <clears throat> we weren't able. To, our study can't show to what degree it is the first or the second, 
but it is something for future research like for us to think about. We talked about this offline, Devesh, where you kind of gave the example of your own daughter, right? Who if someone says, where are you from? And she says, well, you know, I'm from Philly. And they said, no, 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 where are you really from? <laughs> Meaning they want her to say India, right? That could be something that someone might perceive as, 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 as discriminatory or someone is profiling you, whereas people in the first generation you know, may, may not have that experience and may not take it the same way. Yeah, and, and when, when, when I'm asked that, I'm clearly like from India and I say that and I don't take her front. But in her case, she's not, I mean, she's from Philadelphia, so... So you're absolutely right. Yeah. Jonathan, Devesh kind of alluded to this, but the report does have something to say about the social circles Indian Americans run in, right? Um, what do we know about their social networks? And by social networks, of course, we don't mean, you know, Facebook, Twitter, <laughs> LinkedIn. We mean the actual humans they surround themselves with, their friends. Are they dominated by other Indians? What kind of variation does the data throw up? So first, as Devesh alluded to earlier, those that were born outside of the U.S. reported substantially higher numbers of Indian origin friends than those that were born within the U.S., which likely makes sense. Another finding that was also pretty intuitive is that Indian Americans living in counties with greater numbers of other Indian Americans, this would be places like Middlesex County in New Jersey and not Wyoming, are indeed more likely to say that all or most of their friends were of Indian origin. We also asked respondents about the religious, regional, and caste composition of their Indian American friends, in particular, whether their friends were of the same religion or caste or from the same region in India as they were. We found the most in-group clustering on the question of religion, where about half of all respondents said that most or all of their Indian origin friends were of the same religion as they were. Now, if you break this down by the religion of the respondents, Hindus were most likely to report that either most or all of their friends were also Hindu. But this isn't necessarily surprising. After all, we were asking about the religion of respondents' Indian-American friends exclusively. And we know that Indian-Americans are mostly Hindu. In fact, when you take this into account, we actually see slightly more in-group clustering among both Muslims and especially Christians than we might otherwise expect, given that there are just relatively fewer Muslims or Christians in the Indian-American diaspora. The question about respondents' friends' caste is also interesting. I know we're going to talk more about caste later, but an important preface here is that only a minority of the sample, so slightly less than half, identify with caste at all. But we still ask that those that don't identify with caste about the caste composition of their social networks, and what we find is striking. First, a large majority, 75% of those that do not identify with caste, nevertheless know enough to be able to identify how many of their friends were of the same caste as they were, suggesting that the fact that people aren't choosing to identify with the caste doesn't mean it's necessarily an unknown quantity. The second finding is that when you drop out people that said they don't know how the caste of their friends compared to their own, there really are only pretty slight differences in responses between those that identified with the caste and those that do not. 30% of those that do identify with caste say most or all of their friends are of the same caste, while 20, 26% of those that do not identify with caste say the same, which is a meaningful difference, but maybe not one that's as large as you might expect. Sumitra, so Jonathan already kind of jumped in on the issue of caste, but let's back up, rewind a little bit. I mean, caste is something that in the year 2021, as surprising as it may seem, is very much in the news in America in a variety of different contexts. There's a very prominent lawsuit going on in the state of California about caste discrimination. The front pages of the New York Times had a story recently about uh, alleged caste discrimination um, uh, in New Jersey. Uh, tell us a little bit about what this report says and doesn't say about caste. 
So I think the main finding from this section is that about half of all Hindu Indian American respondents identify with the caste group. So that means that on the on the inverse, a large proportion, the other half, does not actually say that they identify with a caste identity or a caste group. But there's actually some heterogeneity in this result. So respondents who are born outside of the U.S. are significantly more likely relative to those born in the U.S. to, to say that they identify with a caste group. Um, there's actually no difference on the basis of how long these respondents have stayed in the United States. So people who recently arrived in the U.S. are just as likely to say that they identify with a caste group relative to those who've been over here for a quarter of a century or more. So, so bottom line, about half of respondents who are Hindu Americans, Hindu Indian Americans, apologies, say that they identify with caste. The other half says that they do not. Among these respondents that do say they have a caste identity, about 80% of them say that they belong to the category of general or upper caste. And amongst the others, about 16% identify as member of OBC caste and 1% each um, in the Adivasi slash scheduled tribe or scheduled caste um, category. To me, though, the most striking finding from these sets of results is that we have about 50% respondents who say they don't have a caste identity. In, in, in a, put in another way, this is 50% of non-response, right, when you're talking about the technicalities of um, survey and measurement. Half the sample says they, they do not identify with the caste identity and did not want to answer in that way. I don't want to speculate too much about the mechanisms or the reasons, but this could be for a bunch of different reasons, right? For example, given how sensitive caste identity is, like you said at the beginning, non-responses could actually mask those who don't wish to disclose their caste identity, even if they're aware of what that is. So regardless, to me, I think this result opens up several future research avenues on this topic and lines of inquiry into why and why not respondents choose to answer survey questions um, in certain ways. Right. I mean, it could also just be for the simple reason, just to add to the the list of hypotheses, that, that people genuinely don't identify, right? I mean, particularly, you know, people who are born in this country, some of them may not know, be aware, may just may not be kind of on their, on their consciousness. Um, Devish, what I found really interesting, and it surprised me actually, and as somebody who's looked at this community much longer than I have, I wonder if it surprised you, that just about 43% of survey respondents chose to self-identify as Indian American, right? So others prefer the term Indian or American, no hyphen, South Asian American, Asian American. Um, there is a difference by where you're born, uh, which again, I think is quite intuitive. If you are born in the United States, you're much more likely to consider yourselves American rather than Indian. The opposite true, uh, opposite is true for those born elsewhere. I assume that this is sort of common amongst immigrant communities, but what do you think the larger implications of this are? Partly, you know, we know about identity, you know, all identities are somewhat malleable, but not completely so. Uh, there are some parts of our identity which we think are intrinsic to us, some cases, uh, they're shaped by context. And in some cases, they reflect certain types of, of you know, strategic behavior. Uh, immigrants attempt to integrate themselves in the host society 
they reinvent themselves. You know, one way we see it is how they change their names often to make them more uh, <coughs> congruent, if you want to call it, with host society norms. So this is the kind of Bobby Jindal, Nikki Haley effect. Right, right. You change the first name, so you're trying to integrate. Uh, I, I think in some cases, what we are seeing here, uh, for instance, of of Indian American, not Indian. I mean, uh, people who've immigrated from India, who are Muslim, who are ident- self-identifying with South Asians, that's partly a reflection of the context in which there is the perception and reality of the discrimination against Muslim in India. For some who are identifying as Asian Americans, I think it might mark an expression of solidarity given the uh, <clears throat> the atmosphere, the attacks on Asian Americans, right? So sometimes there are parts of the context that shape your reaction. Uh, it may not necessarily be one that is fixed for all time. Uh, as contexts change, how we self-identify can, although need not, change. You know, one could look at our data and also say that, you know, more than three out of four of the respondents identified, self-identified themselves with something slash India. Indian American, India, NRI, etc., etc. And I think it's also it's a reflection of the relative young vintage of this immigrant population. You know, if we were to do the same survey three generations down, as it has happened with Italian Americans, German Americans, all immigrant groups, part of the retention to the country or place of origin is to express a certain sense of pride, right? Uh, and that's not against anyone. It's just one's own sense of self-worth that is reflected in the self-identification. And in part, it might be that you don't want to identify precisely because you think that your country of origin has turned away from people like you. I think these diversities probably reflect a range of reasons such as these. Uh, and, you know, given how diverse the U.S. is, given how diverse India is, in that sense, I don't think so. It was particularly surprising to see these different self forms of self-identification. I want to go back to something we talked about the first time we all got together on this podcast, which was back in October, where we found pretty clear evidence, I think, of significant partisan polarization within the Indian American community. And we sort of highlighted that as one of the kind of keystone sort of findings. This report looks at that issue in slightly greater depth and finds that this polarization is asymmetric, right? Um, Tell us how this works. So this report not only looks at it in greater depth, but I think from a different angle. So in October, before the elections, we were interested in knowing how Democrats and Republicans viewed prominent figures, political figures from the other party using 
feeling thermometer ratings and those sorts of standard measures. But in this one, we look at it from a social angle. And I think to me, the key question that we ask with all of these uh, measures in our survey is, does your partisan affiliation affect how you interact with others in society? So are you more or less likely to make friends based off of how somebody votes, right? And broadly, here's what we find. We find that Republicans, Indian American Republicans in our sample, are more comfortable having close friends who are Democrats than vice versa. So to put some numbers to this, about 54% of Republicans in our sample say that, say that they are very comfortable having friends who vote Democrat. On the other hand, just 27% of Democrats say that they're comfortable having Republicans friends. So that number pretty much got halved um, when it comes to what Democrats think of people from the other party. Now, these are standard questions asked in several American public opinion surveys. So we're actually able to compare these results to the general American population. And when we do, um, what's surprising is that the findings from our survey essentially go the opposite way from what's been shown about American society so far. So for Americans overall, generally, a pretty robust finding from survey research is that Republicans, not Democrats, have a more unfavorable opinion of the other party. So to me, it's really fascinating and interesting that we essentially find precisely the opposite. So that I think underscores that the mechanism of social interaction, in this regard at least, is different for Indian Americans relative to the American population more generally, and something that I think we need to look um, a lot more closely at as researchers. I mean, two things I want to say on this. One is that that, that finding you just mentioned is replicated to a certain extent when it comes to people's partisan identity in India. In other words, people who associate or support the Congress party are much less comfortable having close friends who are BJP supporters, which is, of course, the ruling party of Prime Minister Modi, than vice versa, right? Um, the second thing is, and, and you know, I just love your reflections on this, could this be potentially um, due to the fact that in, in both countries, we have very polarizing figures who dominate a lot of national politics, right? Until recently, it was Donald Trump here, right, who, who changed the Republican Party in some fundamental way. And in India, you have Modi, who, of course, has remade the BJP kind of in his own image. So is, could that be playing a factor? I think so. I mean, there's so many mechanisms and one could speculate all day. I think it's really fascinating. But to me, a little bit of the puzzle is also the fact that um, I think a lot of the animosity towards the Republican Party that, it, that, that manifests for Democrats is how the Republican Party is perceived to be intolerant of minorities. And this comes across in our report, too. Respondents feel who don't vote Republican feel that the Republican Party is intolerant of minorities. So perhaps it's that same factor that's pushing this mechanism to work in opposite ways. Um, or perhaps it's what you said, it is that the cult of personality that exists in, in the political right in both countries um, affects how people socially behave in society. Um, regardless, I think we, we have a lot of work to do on this. Yeah, we'll, we'll link in the show notes to the previous report um, where we asked explicitly, we know that Indian Americans lean Democratic, but no one's really asked them systematically why. Uh, and we, we, we sort of did that. And, and again, the number one issue was that, that the belief or the perception that the Republican Party 
is intolerant minorities, followed by that they're sort of xenophobic, right? And sort of against, you know, people who come from elsewhere. Uh, Jonathan, let me let me turn to you again um, and ask you about the factors that could be creating divisions within the Indian American community, right? One of the things that's been a consistent theme throughout since we started this endeavor a year ago are sort of signs that there are new cleavages or cracks or divisions within the Indian American community, you know, which could, to a certain extent, maybe be um, hindering collective action or kind of collective response. What do we know about those divisions and what Indian Americans themselves think of them. So as you were suggesting with your point about asymmetric polarization between Congress and BJP supporters, Indian politics do make it over and affect politics in the United States among the Indian diaspora. Now, respondents were still substantially more likely to say that domestic politics in India are not creating divisions among the Indian diaspora in the United States, and they were to say that Indian politics were driving these divisions. But it's also important to note that fully a third of our respondents didn't express an opinion either way. So there's some ambiguity here. Now, of those that had said Indian politics were driving divisions in the U.S., and this was slightly over a quarter of the respondents, we asked them what aspects of Indian domestic politics in particular they felt were most divisive. They were able to choose multiple from a list. The most common response was religion, followed closely by political leadership, both of which were actually chosen by a majority of respondents. And then the third most popular response was political parties. By contrast, fewer respondents pointed to things like economic policy as creating divisions in the diaspora. Now, it's important to note that given the state of domestic politics in India right now, it's kind of difficult to disentangle these different factors. Religion, and in particular Hindu majoritarianism, has been taking on a more visible role in political discourse, for example, and obviously political parties and political leadership in particular are closely related. Although it is interesting to note that there was this substantial jump where respondents were meaningfully more likely to blame political leadership in particular, most likely this would have been understood as some combination of Prime Minister Modi and his uh, BJP party, rather than just political parties in general. One last thing to note is that there were some differences by place of birth here. So respondents born in the U.S. were significantly more likely to say that domestic politics were driving divisions in the diaspora. Additionally, they were even more likely to place the blame at the feet of religion and political leadership. And that perhaps tracks with what we know about second and third generation Indian Americans, greater concerns about Hindu majoritarianism and greater skepticism toward Modi and the BJP, as we discovered in the previous version of this report. So I want to end this conversation by kind of thinking about some of the bigger picture themes. Samitra, let me start with you and go back to the question we discussed earlier about discrimination. You know, we've seen a lot of frankly, national level conversation at this point about bias directed towards the Asian American community. John Oliver highlighted it on his show. It's been on the front page of the New York Times. It's been on, you know, talk radio. Uh, how do you think about the findings that we put forward on discrimination faced by Indian Americans kind of in this broader context? And do you think that it's proof given that one in two do feel discriminated against, that kind of socioeconomic status and your wealth and your educational attainment don't necessarily guard against kind of everyday, very sort of, you know, routinized forms of discrimination. Yeah, I think you're perfectly right. I think Indian Americans and Asian Americans more generally are talked about a lot of times as a model minority. And Indian Americans, when they have higher levels of income and education, this language gets applied to them a lot. 
But I think maybe this language sometimes masks inequalities and struggles often within the community. And like you mentioned, there is this current wave of pretty horrific hate crimes, um, not specifically towards Indian Americans. But you said this at the start when we started recording that the Indian American community is not a stranger to violence. I remember um, after 9-11, several Indian Americans were victims of violent hate crimes and xenophobic rhetoric, and the Sikh community was targeted in particular. So I think you're you're correct in saying that these successes do not guard them or inoculate them against everyday discrimination, right? One in two people saying that they experience discrimination is a very large number. And a lot of people say this is on the basis of skin color. So those successes do not matter when all that's being perceived is skin color, and that's the basis for discrimination. But my sense is that the younger generation, those that are born in the U.S. and in this sample also report more discrimination. These are the these are the people who are also more likely to participate in protests and demonstrations, right? If the last year in American politics has shown anything, this generation likes to go out onto the streets and fight for their rights in unconventional or, or different ways. So the hope, I suppose, for me is that the, those who have an increased awareness of discrimination and new tools to fight them might be able to use those tools to empower the Indian American community to find new ways to advocate for themselves as well as all of the values and beliefs that they hold pretty close to their heart in a, in a diverse country like America. Devesh, let me end with you by kind of taking this maybe to the realm of foreign policy. I mean, you and I uh, live and work in Washington, D.C., there's been a you know, decades-long conversation about U.S.-India relations. If these numbers are representative, and we believe they are, and that polarization within the community is real, even if it's not perhaps as robust as um, as some make it out to be, it's clearly there. There's some gathering signs. If this polarization gets more and more entrenched, it gets deeper into the kind of fabric of the community, how do you think this impacts U.S.-India relations, right? Because we've known historically, going back at least to the year 2000, but I think probably before as well, the Indian diaspora has been a kind of bridge builder, right? And is responsible in some direct way for strengthening U.S.-India relations right now into this kind of strategic partnership. How, what is the interaction now going forward? What is it that that we should be worried about? Well, well uh, <clears throat> At a very minimum, it does not help. Uh, the fractiousness within a group, uh, in this case, among the Indian American community, it it just creates more noise at a minimum, right? <clears throat> uh, I, however, do, do not think that the fundamentals of the U.S.-India relationship they're really being shaped by much bigger geopolitical forces. And I think uh, the elephant in that room is really China. I also think that as we saw, and you yourself have also noted this elsewhere, that the despite the fractiousness, when push comes to shove, as with the response to the horrific uh, COVID crisis in India, even the sharpest critics of the Indian government, they all came together 
to help and push the U.S. government to help India in more robust ways. Uh, so, so I think at least on the humanitarian aspect, you do see, uh, in a sense, this fractiousness has its limits. On the larger strategic aspects, if it's being driven by much larger forces, I think what it does is it makes it it will do things like delay certain things, it will slow down certain things. The trust factor will become somewhat less as people question the value of the relationship, does it reflect American values, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I don't think it will reverse it. But I think the bottom line, I think, that comes out of our report for the larger implications for the U.S.-India partnership is that the community itself has to try much harder to emphasize what are the threads that link them together and try and work also much harder on trying to bridge the divides that are clearly emerging uh, and are especially there among between the religious minorities and India's religious majority. So I think there is a lot of work uh, that has to be done because unless the community itself works on this, uh, its fractiousness will undoubtedly have spillover effects to some extent, and maybe even to larger extents on the broader partnership. Could I just press you on one aspect of this? Because if one of the takeaway findings from this collection of studies is that some of this polarization is imported from India itself, isn't it also incumbent on politicians and leaders in India to think about that polarization, but also how they talk to members of the diaspora who may not agree with them, right? As you, as you rightly pointed out, many of the lawmakers say on Capitol Hill who have been very critical about this government, not necessarily of India, the nation, but of this government, have been the first to agitate for greater humanitarian assistance and, and quicker humanitarian relief. So is there a lesson, do you think, for people in positions of responsibility back home in India? Hundred uh, percent, but wisdom does not come easily, Milan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's like a fortune cookie I, I once got. <laughs> uh, it's it's a very banal observation, but regrettably true. Uh, the the you know Indian politicians have to realize, you know, it's beginning to affect U.S. foreign policy, right? It used to be that politics, your internal politics should end at the water's edge, so to speak. Right? It shouldn't carry itself into foreign policy because that has other larger implications beyond the political party's fortunes. They have implications for the country at large. And so... That sort of having a certain much greater sense of self-restraint to, to distinguish between attitudes of people in the U.S. towards a political party versus their views about the country, having that ability, that 
going back to that word, the sense of judgment, sense of wisdom. Undoubtedly, that would be most welcome. Whether that will happen, uh, it, uh, let's. Uh, I, I, I have to hold my breath. My guests on the show this week are Sumitra Badrinathan, Devesh Kapoor, and Jonathan Kay. They're my co-authors of a new study to be published on Wednesday, June 9th, Social Realities of Indian Americans, Findings from the 2020 Indian American Attitude Survey. Um, guys, it's been such a fun ride. Uh, almost a year ago today, we started planning and thinking about this. And special shout out to Jonathan, who has been there almost from the very beginning, um, but really, really put his heart and soul into this new report. Um, and and the one day he's lost so much weight. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He's it, it's impacting in, in 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 more ways than one. But uh, but uh, but thanks so much, and, and look forward to doing this again. Thank you, Milan. Thanks, Milan. Thanks so much. Grant Masha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun Times. This podcast is an HD Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com, India's fastest growing podcasting producing platform. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we referenced on this week's episode, visit our website, granthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Jonathan Kay, Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff Jayapranada is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast. I still think you're in the wrong job. Okay, that last part we should definitely keep, Tim.